0: Hey everybody, welcome to No One Told Me where we hope to prepare you for the things no one prepared you for. My name is Callie and here we rely on past experiences of others to shape our future experiences. So these topics, they're carefully selected with you in mind knowing that your time is precious and everything you hear should leave you better than before you pushed play. Today's episode is special mainly because it's been a long time in the making. I wasn't entirely sure if this difficulty in addressing anything to do with intimacy was just a me thing or not. So before I do topics like today's, I always try to feel it out with you all over at Podcast on Instagram because if this is truly going to make you better, I want to make sure we're talking about what matters to you. So I asked you guys, hey, what was it like when your parents gave you the talk? You know the one I'm talking about and based on your stories and honestly the stories of my husband Ryan who we somehow in 15 years had never compared notes on how this was for us many of you grew up on farms and your parents you know why complicate it they just relied on the farm animals to explain what exactly it meant when they said intimacy so let's just let's take a moment to mourn or maybe celebrate The loss of our ignorance when it comes to this topic. Here are a few of your stories. So I was eight. Someone passed me a note on the bus about sex, and my mom found it and went into the whole birds and the bees story. I just thought the note was talking about sleeping. Okay, I'm going to stop here because I honestly think this story just sets up an opportunity to talk about all the things you learned on the bus. Am I right, car riders? You will never understand this, but the bus—it was a different world. Okay, another story. I was in fourth grade and explained how I thought it worked to my mom. I now tell her that I actually gave her the talk. But then I personally, Callie, I had a follow-up question for this listener. I wanted to know if her fourth grade self had everything right. And apparently she did. So my next question was, were you a bus rider? Okay, this next one, it might be one of my favorites. My mom drew stick figures while driving down the interstate. One figure had a circle and one had what I thought to be an extra leg. I was wrong. Okay, so I respect this mom so much because she just got straight to the point. You know, why waste the time with analogies with farm animals? Let's just, let's draw it out right here, right? Okay, but these conversations happening in cars, this was a common theme in these stories. And I get the strategy. I fully get it. It's actually kind of genius. You have trapped the child. They can't not listen to what you're saying. They're not going anywhere. One parent apparently was using this strategy and got so distracted in her explanation that she and her daughter ended up on a closed road on private property with a very aggressive landowner pointing a shotgun in their direction. So, I mean, if you weren't already sweating from just the content of the conversation, then you definitely were by then. One said her older siblings and very curious friends filled her in, but that was followed by her mom offering to pay her $1,000 if she remained absent when she started college. I mean, I guess it paid for her books that way, you know, maybe some smoothies. And even more said that their parents, like mine, utilized books with pictures, very descriptive pictures, and probably the biggest power move of all was the mom who showed her daughter a fully unedited picture from a doctor's view during delivery. And I quote, the baby was crowning. Okay, I'm going to be honest, I've delivered two kids, and I don't even know what that looks like. But there were also so many who said they never had any conversations about it. One said, I just had to go in blind, searching around for the right parts. And if I'm perfectly honest with you, even if you do have the talk, you're still doing that the first round. Our moms, dads, aunts, grandmothers, they did the best they could. And as a parent, the thought of this conversation makes my eye twitch. But it's because we have this obscured view of sex and its purpose within marriage. We've made it something to hide, to be ashamed of. We've built guilt around it, but I don't think this was intentional. I actually think the narratives we're talking about were started with good intentions, but twisted with shame along the way. If you were or know someone who was raised attending events like True Love Waits, Silver Ring Thing, and they were reading I Kiss Dating Goodbye, there are a lot of disparities between the why and the how. A lot of inaccurate pictures painted about incredible wedding nights gaping holes and explanations of sex within marriage and a scarcity of grace for anyone who found themselves crossing lines they were advised not to. A seed of truth, when not watered with intentional conversation, honest answers and grace can easily shrivel into feelings of guilt, shame and uncertainty as we try to fill in the blanks ourselves. We enter marriage with an expectation, an idea. And when that expectation isn't met, When the idea remains just that, an idea, we're left with a disappointment and the apprehension that we don't know what to do with. I'm so thankful for the people in my life who came alongside me to help navigate the realities of intimacy. I'm even more thankful for the stories of my people who experienced the redemption of knowing a grace-filled Jesus in the face of a shame-filled moment. But not everyone has those people. And if that's you, you can right now consider no one told me your people. So do me a favor. If you finish this episode and you have more questions, more thoughts, and you want to lean into a piece of it. Let me know at NOTM podcast. Your story matters. I promise your story matters to others because they want to know if their story matters. This may just have to be a part of, you know, just one part that is a part of a long overdue conversation around purity culture, real intimacy, and why the heck no one tells you what that honeymoon night is actually like. So we're having a conversation with my new friend, psychologist, Dr. Camden Morgante, who is currently in the middle of researching and writing a book about the impact of purity culture on our overall world view. This, my friends, is just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so one of my favorite things about Instagram is how often I get to meet people that I don't know that I would have gotten to meet otherwise. And that's the story of today's guest. So Camden reached out to me about this concept of purity culture. And this is something that we have touched on here on No One Told Me, but have not gone very deep in. And before we even hit record, I was telling Camden, I was like, This is something that's so much deeper than I even realized. And she just said, Well, that's usually the response I get on this topic. So, Camden, we're excited to have you here. I'm going to let you tell us a little bit of your backstory. I know you are a practicing psychologist. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of how you got into it, why you're passionate about it, that kind of stuff.
1: I'm Camden Morganti. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm at a Christian private practice. And I work there as well as teaching college classes as a professor online. And then I also write and do some speaking about this topic about purity culture and women's issues. I've been married for almost five years and we have a 2 year old daughter. Um, And so she keeps me very busy too, as all the moms listening know and definitely working both of us working full time and then having a child is is a lot to handle. Yes.
0: That is tricky business. Have you gone through the potty training stage yet?
1: Well, she's, just a little over two. So oh, we've okay. introduced it. Yes. Yeah. So we've introduced it. She uses it here and there, but she's not super interested right now.
0: Oh my gosh. That's we are I have a three year old and we are in the heart of it. And so my mind only revolves around potty training right now. So like every person yeah. who's like, I have a child who's this age, I'm like, Okay, talk to me about potty training what are you doing? How's it working? Because Mm. I have an older daughter who took to it immediately. And then my son, Hagen, he's just he's like, I don't why would I do this? This just takes time. I've got other things I'd rather be doing right now. (laughs) Why are you even trying? Let's start with the basics. Because I think if you're in the South, or if you grew up in the South, you remember things like uh, silver ring thing, or true love Mm -hmm. weights. I mean, I those were a huge part of my upbringing. I remember going to all of them. I had multiple rings that I wore, you know, the whole, the whole deal. I read the books, I did all of it. But for someone who is kind of just hearing this phrase, maybe wasn't introduced to it until later, define purity culture for us. And also just dive into how you started noticing it was bigger than just something Mm -hmm. we went to as high school students.
1: Yeah. So purity culture is an evangelical Christian belief and movement, social movement, kind of in the late 1990s, early 2000s, which is when I was growing up. And so I was very much steeped in it. And it's teachings about purity, sexual purity, about refraining from sexual intimacy until marriage, about being abstinent until marriage. And The intent of the movement, I feel, was good, and so I I do make it clear in my writings that I do still believe in what I call this biblical sexual ethic of reserving sexual intimacy for marriage, but yet the methods and the way that that purity was emphasized and the way that it was taught, with this emphasis on the rings and rallies and purity balls and I kissed dating goodbye and, and then those kinds of things were part of the movement had a real rippling effect that was really unintended and unanticipated. But like you said, it's, it goes so much deeper and, and it still affects us to this day. A lot of women and men in our twenties, thirties and forties now who grew up in this culture. Mm-hmm. So I've started noticing it because I grew up in this culture. Like I said, I went to um, youth group and church growing up, had a true love weights ring, red eye kiss dating goodbye, made the um, purity pledge. Went to a Christian college, which this was very much the norm, to at least proclaim that you had this belief, and that was celebrated. But then I started to realize that some of the things I was taught in purity culture were false promises. They ended up not coming true for me. For example, I was promised that if I remained pure, that God would give me a fairytale marriage and a spouse. And my relationship in college, that was my first serious relationship, my first love ended after three years. And I was completely devastated and heartbroken Mm -hmm. and just really uh, my faith was was even really shaken because it was like, where where is this promise that you promised me, God? Like, where where is the marriage and the husband and this beautiful fairy tale ending that I thought was going to happen? And I ended up being single for almost all of my 20s, not meeting my husband until my late 20s. We got married when we were 30. So it it was a long road of really unpacking the belief, the purity culture and the effects that it had on me. You know,
0: your story is one that I hear so often. And I think at times you can think you've done something to not receive it. I know that you deal with a lot of shame. I mean, reading your blog and kind of some of the writings you've done. You talk a lot about this piece of shame and that Mm -hmm. some, and it's not even just shame for lines you crossed. It's shame even on your wedding night of, I don't Mm -hmm. know how to do this. So for you, when you were navigating that either personally or in conversations you've been able to have with, with people all over about this topic, how do you see this showing itself in our adult
1: years? Well, for me, the damage, the shame was in being single, like what's wrong with me that I seem to have done everything quote unquote right, but I don't have the rewards that I was promised. So there was a lot of shame about why am I still single and what's wrong with me? When am I ever going to meet someone? But for others, shame is still a part of their story, even if they do get married and have a happy marriage, but maybe sex is not what they expected. Mm-hmm. Sex can often be very painful, very difficult, very frustrating for married couples, even if they waited. Mm-hmm. There's really there's really no guarantees that that is what we were told in purity culture. We were, we were told as long as you wait, sex is going to be fantastic and mind-blowing on your wedding night. Mm-hmm. And that is just not the case for the majority of, um,
0: of people. It is just not the truth. No one told me about that and that the experiences are very different. And you are, I thought, like you said, of well, it immediately just happens. It works and everyone's happier for it. And that is just not the reality of it. So for those Mm -hmm. of us who were raised in this, who were, you know, um, fully just engulfed by it. And like you say, and you write, it's not that it's all bad. It's just Mm -hmm. some of the myths that are perpetuated, cause damage over the years. So what are some of those thoughts and some of those myths?
1: Yeah, so I love talking about the myth, because the first article I wrote about purity culture is called the five myths purity culture so I've identified and named these five myths and now I'm writing a book about purity culture kind of centering around these myths and what's the actual truth and how do you deconstruct these myths Mm -hmm. so the first myth is I call it the spiritual barometer myth the idea that you are a better Christian if you are a virgin or remain pure and that you can tell how mature spiritually someone is by their virginity or Mm. by their purity Mm. and that really causes a lot of pride you know for me It caused, it caused pride of just like, well, you know, why don't I have what that, what that person has, that friend of mine has when I've done everything right, like I said. So it caused some just really ugly pride. Mm. So that's the first myth. The second myth is called the fairytale myth. And this is what we've been talking about of if I remain pure, God's going to give me a fairytale dream, wedding and spouse. And for a lot of people, this leads to a feeling of entitlement. I know I struggled with that. I felt entitled to this. I felt like, where is my reward, God? Um, which is such an ugly you know, attitude to mm-hmm. have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When instead, the truth is that it's God's grace that he brings us a spouse or not. Mm-hmm. You know That either one, are, whether you're single or married, is a valid life stage. And it's God's calling for your life and his best for your life. His grace is wherever you're at whatever stage of life or season of life that you're in, whether Mm -hmm. single or married. That's myth number two. The the third myth we've also touched on, the flipped switch myth. The idea that as soon as you get married, the switch flips and suddenly sex is on limits Mm -hmm. when it was off limits for so long. And that's fantastic right away. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of disappointment that comes from this myth because it's not easy right away for a lot of couples. Mm -hmm. And even purity culture and these religious beliefs about sex can often even cause more shame or sexual problems. Mm -hmm. So it can Mm -hmm. actually, sex can actually be harder for couples, who've waited and who've bought into some of these beliefs because maybe they didn't get good sex education, like you're saying, or they didn't have healthy and realistic expectations about sexuality.
0: Yeah. And it's that expectations piece. If there's one thing I've learned in relationships or marriages is what causes the most damage is unmet expectations where you Mm -hmm. have expectations that you either have communicated or not, or that have been set for you and then they're not met. And so in this scenario, even with, you know, whether it's the honeymoon night, or whether it's developing that intimacy over time, every couple responds differently, I think, you know, you mm-hmm. everyone's coming into the marriage differently as well with different histories. But how do you help some of these couples walk through this, Camden, of this is what we know to be true. And it's like you said that this is the myth that stands out to me that I didn't realize until so much later in life, just the mm-hmm. the truth of it, that, this is something that is a sin for so long to do, but then it's not mm-hmm. anymore. And so, with mm-hmm. that in mind, how do you help these couples kind of navigate it? How do you help them navigate those unmet expectations?
1: Well, ideally, it would start even before marriage. You know, I work with people right now in therapy who aren't married yet, who are working through these issues so that when they get married, they don't have some of these sexual problems. They can prevent some of these problems. Mm-hmm. So we're working through, we work through the beliefs and the messages that they've received about sexuality. Messages like sex is bad, sex is, is dirty or sinful, or women don't want sex. It's only men who want sex. Mm-hmm. So we work through some of those those myths and those beliefs and deconstruct them by comparing them to the biblical truth about sex. Mm-hmm. So a lot of re-education has to happen. And whether it's before marriage or after marriage, couples, couples need sexual education. Mm -hmm. Couples sometimes need therapy or need to read books or need to work, you know, with a trained and licensed professional who can work with them on their sex life Mm -hmm. and help them communicate about it and get the skills and the knowledge in order to have a more fulfilling sex life.
0: Why do you think you don't see a lot of conversations around this, though? Why do you think it's a topic people kind of shy away from on any public platforms?
1: Oh, just. Just the stigma of it of sexuality and just the shame around sexuality, mm-hmm. we all carry some sort of sexual shame or baggage because we're all sinful humans. You know that's my belief. Mm-hmm. We all have sexual sin in our lives, whether we had premarital sex or not, or whether we've been you know faithful in our marriages or not the bible says you know just lust itself is a sin so mm. we all have some sort of sexual sexual sin and then often shame and baggage from the messages we receive from our parents or our churches or schools or peers growing up so mm, i think everybody just has a lot of shame around this and so there's stigma of speaking up about it and speaking the truth
0: it's almost like your blood pressure starts rising as soon as anyone even brings up the topic. (laughs) It's just like you start sweating a little bit. Like, Are we going to talk about it? Are we not? Okay. So those were your first three myths. I think you have what, Mm -hmm. two more.
1: Yes. So myth number four is the damaged goods myth. This is the myth that if you have premarital sex or perhaps sexual abuse, even something that was not your choice and not your fault, but something that happened to you, that you are damaged goods, that you're not whole, that you're tainted and dirty, and that you don't have a whole self to offer your spouse one day. Mm. And shame is the very clear effect of this myth. You know, all of the myths carry shame with them, but shame is is the biggest in this myth, I think. Mm. Um, And it's just not biblical. It's just not true. It's erasing God's gift of forgiveness and redemption. If we say because you've made sexual mistakes or because of something that happened to you that was not your fault, you're damaged goods. That's just untrue and not biblical. And then the last myth I call the gatekeepers myth. And this is the belief that women are the gatekeepers of men's sexuality. So pre-marriage, that often means that women are the ones who have to put the brakes on. They Mm. have to maintain the sexual boundaries. They can't tempt men or cause men to stumble. And then after marriage, it often looks like this idea that, again, women don't want sex. It's only for the man and that you have to meet his sexual needs or else he's going to abuse pornography or have an affair. And then it's your fault. Mm. So this really sets us up for inequality and just a lot of unfair responsibility placed on women and a lack of healthy self-control for men, but they're not learning appropriate self-control and just self-restraint or mutuality in the, in the marital relationship that would really benefit the marriage because the women are given the burden.
0: Yeah. You know, I think anyone who hears those and again, who kind of either even if you didn't grow up around it, I think you can see mm-hmm. you can see the truth of them, even in the lives mm-hmm. of, of others or in conversations with your friends. I mean, I can find myself to a degree in all of those yeah. and feeling everything that you're describing at some point in my life, especially leading up to, you know, engagement into marriage and then having to navigate that and all these conversations I have with these younger girls who are so confused by it. But I will say, I think there's also a flip side to it. And you even speak to that a little bit, that there are some positives that come from teaching these principles. What are some of the positive effects that you see of making these decisions, that it's not all bad, it's just more the how it's being taught? What are some positives that come out of it?
1: Well, I think it's positive to have a high value on sexuality and Mm. to be considering how we can honor God with our bodies and how we can steward our sexuality in a way that honors and obeys God. And and that's really what I emphasize in in my writing is that purity is not to earn rewards or to avoid punishment or consequences. Purity is an act of worship or obedience to Mm. God's teachings about sexuality. Mm. It's a way to worship and honor him with our bodies, And that doesn't end with marriage. I think that was one of the big emphasis on purity culture is that they taught us, you know, as soon as you're married, it's going to be f- fantastic, sex will. And, you know, purity's over then. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't even apply to you anymore. Yeah. Which, in fact, I think we can be having sex in our marriage in impure ways mm-hmm. if we're using pornography or if we're using each other for our own gain without any thought to the other person's needs or desires, or mm-hmm. if we're using sex in a manipulative way to try to have power over the other person, none of those things honor God's design for sexuality either. So just because it takes place in marriage doesn't automatically make it holy.
0: Oh gosh, that's so good. And so within that though, Camden, what I loved about you just leading into that is we are told, and you've said it multiple times, when you are married, it's Mm going to be great. Everything's going to be great. It just all falls into place. It's like the conversation always stopped at marriage, you know, like let's have this conversation. And then once you're married, And things aren't like it doesn't go the way you think it's going to on your honeymoon night or throughout your honeymoon. And then through the first few years of marriage, you're afraid to talk about it because no one's talking about it anymore. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. you get the storyline over and over and over again, but then you're married and it's like, okay, this isn't quite what I imagined it was going to be. What now? So for anyone that might be listening, that is struggling through that, that is maybe been married or just married and they see the impact of that. How would you speak to that?
1: Well, I would encourage listeners who find themselves in that scenario, who are married and and really just disappointed and struggling in their sex life. I would encourage them to reach out for professional help. Mm. You know, there there are so many resources and people that can help, whether it's your gynecologist or a pelvic floor physical therapist or a Christian sex therapist or professional counselor, somebody who is trained in the areas that you need help with and somebody who can walk through this with you and help you like we talked about deconstruct the myths and replacing those with biblical truth mm-hmm. because that's what it really takes in order to to not be affected as much by purity culture anymore mm. and then couples therapy too because if something affects one of you it affects both of you in, yeah. a, in a marriage and in, in, in sexuality so so working together as a couple and seeing what's each of my part in this and how can I loving, lovingly support my partner so that we can have a more connected and intimate sexual relationship. And you know,
0: you even speak to this, that one of the biggest barriers to that is shame. I mean, you mm-hmm. you don't feel like you can have those conversations, that you can bring mm-hmm. someone outside in because it feels shameful. Like I should be able to, according to everything I learned, I should this should be fine. How do you overcome that barrier of shame? How do you move past that and have start these conversations?
1: Well, I do a lot of just education and normalizing. You know, I teach, I said I teach college classes and last semester I taught human sexuality for, for psychology majors in mm. college. And and there were so many things that they didn't know or so many myths that they believed and just re-educating them about sexual pleasure and and all kinds of just different sexual topics and the things that couples deal with and sexual pain and just things that they had no idea about because many of them had grown up in these in Christian environments where sex was not talked about other than it's just a sin. Stay away from it. Yeah. Don't do it.
0: Do you have resources that you lean in the direction of that um, are great starting points that you recommend or that you yourself start with?
1: Yeah, I have a whole page on my website called Purity Culture Resources great. that includes books on purity culture, but then also just books on sexuality that I recommend to my own clients and students.
0: That's great. Um, we will we'll definitely link to that in show notes, because I think that's valuable for a lot of people who maybe aren't ready to have a conversation. They kind of want to uh, just read and educate themselves. And like you said, replace some of these beliefs with truth, mm-hmm. um, the lies that we bought into start there. So let's lean into, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, we talked a little bit about parenting. I think so many can listen to this and say, Okay, I know what I was taught. And while there was truth to it, I didn't love how it was taught. And I can see the damage now as an adult how do you guide parents through this? Like, how do you talk to your kids about these, Mm -hmm. these truths accurately, Mm -hmm. and so that they stick, but not with shame and not with guilt and not with like hide from it. But let's openly talk about it. So where you're okay with it, and you know what, you know, intimacy is protected for why it is, how do Mm -hmm. you have those conversations as a parent?
1: Yeah, this is probably one of the biggest new questions I'm getting because a lot of our generation are parents of young kids and we're wanting to do it differently than, than than we heard. So I think you have to start with your own self-examination. It comes back to yourself and your own belief. You have to be very clear first about the why of purity. You know, like I said, you can't rely on just rewards and punishments and false promises. When you when you talk to your kids about sexuality, you really want to be able to have a deeper why to offer them, mm-hmm. and that so that has to start with you checking your own theology about sexuality, your own beliefs, and examining how purity culture affected you, so that you can work through some of the shame or some of the myths and how they've affected you. So, my number one tip is to start with yourself always. Um, check how your what your beliefs are and how you've been affected and how you're living out sexual purity, even in your marriage. Like I said, it doesn't end once you get married. So it starts with a self-examination. And then secondly, we want to start the conversation early. You know, this its a kind of, it's not the best approach to have a sex talk with with a teenager. The better approach is that it's not one conversation. It's a million little conversations Mm -hmm. from, from their infancy until their adulthood. So it starts really as kids when we use the proper names for their body parts to to model that this is a part of your body that God created, and there's no need to be ashamed of it. There's no need to come up with a silly name for it because I'm uncomfortable. So that's just one example of ways you can model less shame for your kids and just acceptance of their body and teaching them that their bodies are good and that God gave them those parts of their bodies.
0: It's so funny. I just remember watching, do you remember the show Sister, Sister? I loved that show. And I remember one night sitting there watching that show. I must have been in fifth or sixth grade. And all of a sudden, my mom comes and interrupts me and is like, hey, I need you to come in here. And she was so serious. And we go and sit in her room and she has a book that explains our body parts and how they all fit together. And I just remember sitting there listening to her read this book and just being so uncomfortable, but also thinking... I'm trying to watch Sister Sister right now. This does not feel like the right time to have this conversation. Like, I just, I do not want to talk about it.
1: And bless her heart, she probably worked up the courage to talk to you. And, you know, she was trying to do a good job. And, yes, our our parents did the best they could. Yes. You know, they, I mean, they and truthfully,
0: these were big. Like, I don't think if you didn't grow up in it, you don't understand what a big deal these events were. Like to do the silver ring thing or to go to True Love weights and all of this. Stuff. These were big, huge events that so many of our age, like if you grew up, like you said, in the '90s and early 2000s, and you were in a youth group, you went to this stuff. You know, if you are married to someone, came to just step away from the parenting thing for a second. And let's say they didn't grow up the way you did. Mm -hmm. Let's say they grew up completely outside of it and you enter into a relationship with them and into marriage with them and they don't understand your hesitancies and your shame and your anxiety over it because they were just, you know, they're just ready. How do you navigate those discrepancies of it's not a you thing, you know, to use a completely cliche statement, it's not you, it's me, but a lot of times it is so. How do you navigate those discrepancies in a relationship?
1: I think just a lot of conversation and talking about it and helping to educate your spouse. And maybe they can read some things about purity culture as well and talk about how it affected you Mm -hmm. and how you're struggling with some of these, these beliefs. My husband grew up Christian, but he didn't grow up in as much of a saturated purity culture as I did. Sure. And so, yes, so some of this was different to him, too. And also just being male, I think it's just less emphasized for men than Mm -hmm. it is for women. Mm -hmm. Coming back to the gatekeepers myth, that it's just purity is much more emphasized as a virtue that women need to have. Mm -hmm. So so he had less of this, too. And it's just conversations about how it's affected you and and how that's playing out in your marriage so that they can they can be a partner with you in it Mm -hmm. and that you don't feel alone. You're not the one who's damaged or like you know, there's something wrong with you because you can't enjoy sex, but that your partners together working on, on these issues together to have a healthier sex life.
0: Yes, that's so good. It's a very vulnerable place. Um, to -hmm. be. And it's one of those things where you're okay telling your girlfriend that like a a close friend, a best friend, like this is what's really happening. But when it comes to have to explain it to your spouse, it gets a little tougher and the waters get a little murkier on how to do that. But to backtrack a little bit back to parenting, you know, you said you have a a two year old. And when you start having these conversations, are there stages you go through? Like, obviously, you're not going to go the full length of the story with a toddler. Mm -hmm. So how do you as a parent judge what to say and when to say it so that you're creating Mm -hmm. these healthy channels for conversation.
1: So I think answering their questions as they come up, not putting them off or not saying, Oh, I'll tell you that when you're older, but Mm. just being willing to respect their, their curiosity and their questions and giving them the amount of information that they need in order to answer the question. You know, if they say, where do babies come from? I don't know that we have to fully explain conception and fertilization and all of that <laughs> yeah. but putting it into terms that they can understand and that also incorporate your religious beliefs and values into that too. Yeah. So
0: yeah.
1: We're already I'm already like I said using um, using the proper names for body parts with my daughter and we're already having conversations about consent. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. sexual consent. But what that looks like for a 2-year-old is I often ask her can I give you a hug or kiss and if she says no I respect that mm. or she was at the playground and, a, and a, a little kid pulled her hair she has curly hair so it's real cute and yeah. you know so he pulled her hair and and the little kid's mom you know scolded him and, and intervened but I but later I talked to her about it and I said if somebody your hair or touches you and it hurts you or they hurt you, you can tell them, no, thank you. Mm. Please don't do that. I've kind of modeled with her how to how to talk and speak up for herself. So those are just some examples of how even a topic like consent, which we would not think of of talking to a two year old about how I'm already trying to incorporate that as it comes up in her life.
0: This parenting thing. It's no joke. You know, it's just no joke. (laughs) It is. Yes, I'm,
1: I'm telling you, there's nothing that prepares you for it, Callie. Like I, no. like I said, I was, I was older when I had her. I was already a psychologist. I've received all this training on child development. I've been a therapist for years, and yet here she she comes, and I'm just, I'm just like, what am I doing? What is happening? Yes. yes, nothing quite prepares you for motherhood.
0: It really is. I mean, I, I use this loosely. It's not so much that it's a guessing game, but each kid is so different that you're just trying to figure out how are they going to hear this? What do I need to do and present this in a way that they hear it? And I love that you said, let them ask questions. I think we build it up in our heads that we have to have these like moving big conversations with our kids and force them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when you force it, whether it's about intimacy or whether, I mean, it can be about anything I've just learned, especially with my five-year-old, the more that I force it and try to make her have a conversation about it, she don't want to have the conversation anymore. You know, just let it naturally come up when they ask, answer the question, honestly, tell them the truth about what's happening. Don't say, well, we'll talk about it when you're older because then Mm -hmm. they might have lost interest in hearing about it from you. I mean, they might be hearing about it from other people, from friends and, that might not be missed or the information you want them to have.
1: It also, when you say, I'll tell you later, we'll talk about it later. Now, of course, I can understand there's a time and a place for that. If they're asking, you know, in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner. Hey, if you're at the (laughs) dinner table, go
0: ahead and open it up. You know, just use the turkey as a display, a diagram. We'll talk about
1: it later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, But no, when you say that, I think you're also kind of adding some shame to the conversation that like, oh, this is something I'm not supposed to know, or this is something that you know, that mom's like afraid or uncomfortable to talk about. Mm. So I shouldn't have asked it. And then I think as you're asking, you were asking questions about like how do spouses have these conversations and it can be really uncomfortable to talk to your spouse about your sex life or what pleases you sexually. And I think wasn't that this, that discomfort modeled to us in childhood, Mm. you know, when our parents are uncomfortable talking to us about it or, you know, we can only talk to the same sex parent about it. The opposite sex parent, you know, yeah. it has nothing to do with yep. it. Well, well, then how does that play out years later when you're married to an opposite sex partner and you struggle to have that conversation because you've never seen it modeled? You've never mm. had a conversation mm-hmm. about sex with with someone of the opposite sex before maybe.
0: So, and that's, that's, uh, it's just normalizing it. I mean, just these are things mm-hmm. that it's okay to talk about. And even mm-hmm. the way you described, you know, those conversations within marriage and everything else, the the truth you want to communicate is that, it, and I think this is where there was that seed of truth in the conferences or whatever else in purity culture, which is that God designed sex. Like this is a good thing, but we mm-hmm. have, we have twisted it and made it seem bad and shameful mm-hmm. and always sinful and that is Mm -hmm. just not how God designed it to be Mm -hmm. and I love that you're kind of taking this on as we're going to change the narrative and we're going to normalize these conversations because that's the only way that all of these people coming behind us and that's what this podcast is all about preparing those who are coming behind you That's Mm -hmm. the only way they're going to be able to step into these relationships and step into who they are without the shame and the guilt that intricately comes with any thoughts around, even from singlehood all the way into marriage. Mm -hmm. These thoughts, this is how these conversations that we're having today are how we're going to kind of shift that narrative. So I'm really, really thankful for that.
1: I encourage people to explore their beliefs on sexuality and why you believe that because Mm -hmm. we want it to be rooted in faithfulness to God and honoring him with our bodies and obeying his teachings. Like you said, sex is good and was designed by God as a gift for us in marriage. But we have to respect that mm-hmm. if we want to if we want to honor and obey God. So I think just encouraging your your listeners to do that and I would encourage them to, like I said, consider how purity culture has affected you. I have a quiz on my website that I developed based on my five myths. It's called which purity culture myth affects you. Mm. And so you can go and take that quiz and answer the questions and see which of the five myths do you kind of agree with most strongly and how could that be um, affecting you today?
0: Yeah, how's that shaping your perspective and how you look at mm-hmm. the big picture? Yes, that's so helpful. Camden, we end every episode here at No One Told Me with one question. What is something that you are so happy someone did tell you about? What's something you just love that you're into right now?
1: Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of things. This could go serious or it could go oh, hard this is, this is
0: everyone's
1: attention yeah.
0: when they hear this question. They're like, well, I mean, I have a serious and usually I say, hey, share both. Share a serious one and a fun one. Whatever strikes your fancy.
1: Okay. Well, my serious one would probably be just that I am glad that I learned about a healthy sexuality. And I I because I was getting my doctorate in psychology, I had to take all these classes and learn to have these conversations. And so I think it was a good thing that I ended up being older when I got married because I'd already gone through all this Mm re-education and therefore didn't have as many of these struggles once I got married as I think I would have if I'd gotten married young um, Mm -hmm. without the re-education. So that's my serious answer, but my lighthearted answer would be... I recently read about meal planning hacks and like how to make meal planning easily easier. Oh, please tell us. I'm
0: with you. Oh, my. I'm so with you.
1: (laughs) But I read the suggestion was to make a meal matrix where you just list out like four weeks worth of meals and have a theme for each day. And so we've been doing that for a couple of weeks now and it's going really well it, so, it is so you
0: it's not so much that you're getting there and like every single thing is playing but you're just doing four weeks of it and having at least a goal in mind instead yeah, of yeah and each
1: they like, have a theme so like Tuesdays Tuesday as we're recording this is a Mexican theme so I know we're gonna be having one of the four different Mexican meals that I've listed on the matrix. <laughs> so. Oh, that's
0: so good. It takes such a, the difficulty out of it. Of yeah. Feeling like you've got to come up because that's what I mean At our house it's almost always Mexican because that's kind of the easiest thing to do. My husband yeah. jokes about it all the time. He's like can you can we just like look into other cuisines that we like? I mean <laughs> even Italian spaghetti is easy. Let's try it. Yeah, but it yeah. is when you think about meal planning. You're like I don't who has time for this. I literally walk through the grocery store and I'm like I'll get chicken because I know I can make something with chicken and then I mm-hmm. end frustrated because I have no idea what I'm going to make with chicken
1: (laughs) yeah well we do we were doing one of those meal delivery where they yeah where they send you the. we were doing one of those for a while but we just it took a long time to cook and we didn't always enjoy the food and so yep we said let's just plan our own meals and my husband does a lot of the cooking because he works from home right now in the pandemic and, and I'm I'm in my private practice most of the week so so he. Yeah. So he can just kind of go with it. Found meal uh, well, yeah. that's what,
0: even with the the meals that they send you, I remember telling my husband, like it just take the preparation takes so much longer. I mean, you still have to it chop does. stuff. You still have to get all the, the seasonings out and mix them separately and all this. And we currently don't have a working dishwasher. And I'm, all I see is oh, one no. more thing to wash. Like yeah. every time I'm cooking, I'm like, okay, how many things can I stir in this one bowl before it gets gross? Because I don't want to wash multiple bowls. <laughs> it's why Ryan can't watch me cook anymore because he can't handle it. He does not like seeing Uh that I refuse to use other utensils and bowls. So but Camden, I'm so grateful for what you're doing. I know that especially in the South where people get married so young, you made that point, you know, Mm -hmm. I got married later. So I had time to Mm -hmm. correct this. Mm -hmm. I just love the truths that you're sharing for those of us who I mean, I got married at 23. I didn't have time. Mm -hmm. I just had really great friends that were like, let me tell you what this is really going to be. I just really want to spell this out for you, because you're gonna have your world rocked. But you don't always have someone who's having. That conversation with you and then you feel a disappointment. So all of this that you're doing is huge, especially in our culture right now, of correcting that and then kind of steering people towards truth. So tell us where we can find you.
1: Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. And I just love the title and then the approach of your podcast. And then this fit it perfectly. So I love it. Yeah. But listeners can find me at, on my website, which is drcamden.com. That's the abbreviation for Dr. dr. And then I'm on Facebook and Instagram, the same name, Dr. Camden. And I would encourage people to go to my website, read that Five Myths of Purity Culture um, article, take the quiz, which purity culture myth affects you. And then I have several other articles I've written about purity culture and shame and how to talk to your kids about purity. So yeah, so lots of resources there, and lots of books and articles yes for people
0: to- all the good stuff all the good stuff we'll link to it so it's just a couple clicks for people to find you again thank you so much for taking your time with us today I'm excited to read that book you'll have to keep us up to date when it's coming out
1: thank you yeah <laughs> it's a long process so
0: yeah we'll get there listen it always is but then it's always worth it so we can't wait yeah.
1: <laughs> thank you
0: I love ending every episode telling you how thankful I am for you, that you would take your time to listen to what we're trying to do here. So if you loved it, or even if you have feedback, I want to hear about it. You can either hop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or... You can just DM me on social media. Usually I'm on Instagram the most. It's at CEholla. And again, I love hearing from you guys. So make sure you either write a review or send me a DM, which always seems a little bit desperate asking for it. But here I am asking anyways. Thanks again for tuning in.